Pray with me. To you only, Lord. To you only we pour out our praise. We would sing always, only for our King. And with great joy and enthusiasm, Lord, we pour out our hearts to you today. Some of us have full hearts, Lord, because it's just been that kind of week where your working for good was so obvious that we saw your hand everywhere we looked, your fingerprints were on our lives, and we knew. And some of us pour out our hearts to you this morning, Lord, because they're broken over sadness in our world. over sadness in our lives, over sin in our lives. And we want, Lord, to be filled with joy. And we believe your word when it says that weeping may remain for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning, that your anger lasts only for a moment, but Your favor lasts a lifetime. Lord, whether we come with joy or with sorrow today, here are our hearts. You made them. You're the only one who can make them new. We pray this morning for a heart transplant. That as Ezekiel said, you would take the heart of stone that no longer feels and moves and beats with your love and you would replace it with a heart of flesh. God, give us new hearts. Hearts that beat for you only. Lungs that breathe your praise for you only. For you only gave your son for us. And you alone can give us life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I'm sure it was my mom who taught me that before we eat, we ought to pray. And so before we eat together today, we want to pray. And a simple prayer that we might pray today, that every one of us can pray. In fact, Jesus' disciples prayed it. Luke chapter 11 tells us they came to Jesus. I don't think they bowed their heads. I don't think they folded their hands. And I don't think they closed their eyes. But they said this little prayer, Lord, teach us to pray. No matter how you pray, you can pray that prayer. So before we eat together today, before we think together about the Lord's Prayer, would you just say those words out out loud with me today? Lord, teach us to pray. On three. One, two, three. Lord, teach us to pray. Again, Lord, teach us to pray. Do you believe He will answer that prayer? He did for the disciples. He could for us if we would receive it. And, And why pray? Theologian Karl Barth said, because when we clasp our hands in prayer... It's the start of something. It's the beginning of an uprising against the disorder in our world. 
And there's a chance, Anthony Thorold wrote in a devotional that I read this week, prayer is a habit and the more we pray, the better we will pray. Sometimes to go to be alone with God and Christ in the fellowship of the Spirit, just for the joy and blessedness of it, to open with yet eager hands the door into the presence chamber of the great King and then to fall down before Him maybe in silent adoration or very attitude and act of homage. Is that what Jesus meant when he said, when you pray, pray this way, your kingdom come. Would you open your Bibles with me? Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, then Matthew 26 verses 26 to 29 teach us to pray your kingdom come we've seen that God is a father in heaven who loves to give good gifts to his children last week we learned that he has a name and he wants us to honor his name as holy today we see that he has a kingdom next week we'll see that he has a will some of you have been saying to me What is God's will for us? We want to know what God's will is. I want to talk with you about that next week. But today, your kingdom come. Let's stand together in reverence for God and his word. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, a verse that helps us understand this longing for the kingdom where Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well and then the night that Jesus was betrayed do you remember this he talked as they were eating the last supper he he gave it a reference point in the kingdom I don't want us to miss this today Matthew 26 verses 26 to 29 while they were eating Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying take and eat this is my body Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you. In my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Hmm. So our Father has a name and he has a kingdom and he has a will. But I wonder if we have any idea what we are doing when we say your kingdom come. I mentioned to you last week that that little phrase after the third phrase um, on earth as it is in heaven might be applied. So your name be honored as holy on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's kingdom in heaven? 
What does it mean that God is king of heaven? And what would it be like for him to be king on earth? In some ways, this is an eschatological prayer. It's praying for the coming of the consummation of the kingdom of God. When God will be king and everybody on earth will know it. And as Paul describes it, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, can be a little bit confusing for us. Some of us have probably always thought that's a place, like kingdom of heaven is a synonym for heaven, and someday we're going to go to the kingdom of heaven, but that's not what Jesus tells us to pray. He doesn't pray, take us up to your kingdom. He, he says, pray that the kingdom will come. And sometimes Jesus will say, the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is near. It's as if the kingdom is not just a place, but it really is the rule. Donald Craybill says the dynamic rule and reign of God. Always becoming, spreading, and growing. Again, Karl Barth talks about the kingdom in terms of the future and he says the kingdom of God's the final victory over sin it's the reconciliation of the world to God it's the consequence of this reconciliation a new world a new eon a, a new heaven a new earth which are new because they're surrounded by the peace of God or N.T. Wright again a definition of the kingdom he says it's it's really a Jewish way of talking about Israel's God becoming king and when God became king the whole world, the world of space and time, would at last be put to right. One thing we know for sure as we read the New Testament is that sometimes it looks like the kingdom is right here, right now. And sometimes it looks like it's something that happens out in the future. And the truth is that the coming of Christ the first time was the inauguration of the kingdom. It all started with a baby in a manger. And the king was born. But we remember the world didn't know he was king. In fact, the crown they gave him was a crown of thorns. And they crucified him. But Jesus envisioned a time as he ate that last supper with his disciples when he would eat and drink with them again in a new kingdom. When the kingdom was finally here. And what we know for sure is that the kingdom is now and not yet. And that's where we live right now. Our king is king because God has always been king. But someday the whole world will know he is king. And when we worship, we're just showing the world what it's like for God to be our king. So when we pray, your kingdom come. We're saying at least two things. First of all, when we pray your kingdom come, we are saying that we yield to the present sovereignty of the king. So even before Jesus returns, he's already king. Believe me when I say everybody in heaven knows he's king. Sometime this week, open up the book of Revelation chapter 1 and you'll get a picture of Jesus as king. The word that they use is pantocrator, ruler of all. And if you, like John, saw Jesus with hair white as snow, with eyes like fire, you, you would not say, so are you king? You would just know that he was king. 
Well, the people of Israel, if you go in the Old Testament, they, they knew that God had always been king. So in Psalm 45, verse 1, for example, we, we, we see your throne, O God, will last forever. I read this morning Psalm 74, verse 12, where it says, for God has always been our king. But there's just a few glimpses of it in the Old Testament. Remember, that's part of God's disappointment with his people when they say, we want a king like the other nations. And God says to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me because I've always been their king. But when Jesus comes, do you remember this? He begins to preach that the kingdom has come. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. That's his first sermon is about the kingdom of heaven. Um, In in chapter 4, verse 17, his second sermon that we read about, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then in chapter 4, verse 23, he says to them, Uh, As he goes through Galilee teaching in their synagogues, he proclaims the good news of the kingdom. So listen closely. The gospel is not a particular epic of music. The gospel is not just four points in a track that tell you how to get to heaven. The gospel is the good news that God is king. That's the good news that Jesus preached. And it's not new. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, how beautiful are the feet of those on the mountains who bring good news. And what is their good news? Look at the last phrase. Your God reigns. That's the good news. That's the only good news that we have to offer to the world is that Jesus is king and he has come into the world and he offers life to all who will yield to his kingship. So what do you do for a king? I know we've got democracy. We're not big on monarchy. We got rid of that a long time ago. But in the New Testament, in heaven, for instance, it's not democracy. It's a monarchy. And there's a king. And we don't even know how to relate to a king. But one thing we would do in front of a king, I was, I was kind of listening, you know, about the protocol. I'm sure if I ever, and I'm never going to be, but if I was in presence of royalty, I bet I would get it wrong on every score. You know, I would probably walk at the wrong time. I would shake hands when I was not supposed to. I wouldn't know when to, be, I mean, I'm sure I would get it wrong. But just think about if God is our king, What is the protocol? Well, it's worship, to be sure. And that's why we sing to the King who is coming to reign. Glory to Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. We sing to the King and we worship Him. And this has been a week of just worship in beautiful music for me. A week of worship. And then we obey. I mean, one thing about the King is when the King tells you what to do, you don't say, yeah, I don't think so. I mean, if he's really king, I'm not talking about a token sort of um, figurehead king, but I mean, if they're really the king, then doesn't it stand a reason you got to do what they say? So John Stott talks about that greatness in the kingdom is really about obedience to the king. Does that make sense to us That, that if he's king, We need to do what he says. That's why Alan Redpath said, I can never really pray your kingdom come unless and until I'm willing to pray my kingdom go. Because if I take inventory, a lot of my life is trying to make sure I'm in charge. 
And the danger of that, Oswald Chambers picks this up and he says, the problem with that is we think freedom is when we get what we want, but, but real freedom is not the ability to insist on my rights, that last sentence, but to see that God gets his rights. That's different. So the first goal of any soul, Peter Forsyth said, was not to find its freedom. The first goal of our souls is to find their master. So if I'm going to pray, your kingdom come, it makes sense, as N.T. Wright says, that if I'm going to pray this way, I better be prepared to live this way. These are not just token words that I just repeat like some magical formula so I can say I've finished praying. If I say your kingdom come, what I'm saying is, God, I'll do what you want me to do. We used to sing a, a little song to our kids when they were small. I will obey do what you say, call me today, and I will obey. A friend of mine who pastors a church in this city, one night they were talking about the kingdom of God and eating the Lord's Supper. You know, Matthew 26, verse 29, that we, we, Jesus is going to eat with us together again in the kingdom, and they were talking about it. And one of his men came up to him and said, so pastor, you don't know this, it was a Sunday night, but he said, for years, every Sunday night, I went to a place called Emos. I don't even know where that is. Maybe it's still a place. But I went to this place called Emos, and I would go to sleep every night with a drop of ecstasy on my tongue, and I would wash it down with Bacardi 151. But now I come here, and I go to sleep on Sunday night with the taste of the body of Christ on my tongue, and I wash it down with the blood of Christ. Now, see, that's transformation. No longer drugs, but the body and blood of Christ. And the point of the kingdom is that we would live differently by becoming obedient to Christ in every way because the king wants to bring all people into obedience to himself. And the way he brings us into obedience is by giving his life for us on the cross so that in full view of what he's done for us, we want to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice in worship to him, holy and pleasing. I saw it in a, a quote in Spanish this week, and I think it said it better than anything I read in English. So I offer it to you. Tu reino es vida. Tu reino es, es verdad. Tu reino es justicia. Tu reino es paz. Tu reino es gracia. Tu reino es amor. Venga a nosotros tu reino, Señor. What does that mean? To, your kingdom is life. Your kingdom is truth. Your kingdom is justice. Your kingdom is peace. Your kingdom is grace. Your kingdom is love. Your kingdom come, Lord. That's what we're praying. I yield to your sovereignty in my life. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are saying, second, we yearn for the final consummation of your kingdom. And I think I hear it there when Jesus says in 26, 29, I'm not going to drink any more from the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it with you in the kingdom. So just a couple thoughts about this. In the kingdom, when it comes in its full consummation, here's some good news. We're going to get to eat. 
I'm, I'm kind of excited about that. I love to eat. And I, my, my early memories of church was that after we went and listened to the sermon and the music, then we would have all-you-can-eat dinner on the grounds. And here's what I remember about that when I was a little kid. After we would go through the line and we would get our food, then somebody would come by and start picking up our plates, and they would always say this, hold on to your fork. And I knew what that meant, even as a little kid. The chocolate cake or the apple cobbler a la mode or um, it's coming. And so we're not done yet. We've eaten the first, but, but the dessert, the best is yet to be. And maybe this is what Jesus was saying as he ate bread and drank from the cup with his disciples that last night was, hold, hold on to your fork because we're going to eat and drink together again in the final consummation of the kingdom. And by the way, I'm going to be with you. I think that's really good news because some of us feel pretty lonely these days. And the thought that God will be with us, always with us, forever and ever, unseparated communion and intimacy with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Won't that be great? We're going to eat. We're going to be with God. And by the way, he says in the kingdom, he's going to be king. And we will obey. And we will love. And we will worship. And so the Lord's Supper, in a way, as... um, Andrew Peterson says, we we remember and we proclaim. So we remember what God has done, but we proclaim his death until he comes again. And there's a picture at the end of Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9, and it's a picture of a great wedding. I've been going to a lot of weddings recently. I love weddings. And and think about the great wedding. And by the way, after the wedding, the reception, and the way he describes it is, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. He's the king. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. We're the bride. Fine linen, bright and clean. Given her to wear fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And here it is. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited. You don't want to miss this wedding. The wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And Jesus told all those parables in the last week of his life about about everybody being invited to come to the final feast and that even people who didn't expect to be invited would get invited and they would get to come and be a part of what God was doing. And people who thought they would always be on the outside looking in with God are suddenly welcomed guests into the house of God. I got three days. Who's counting? Till we drop off our third and last child at college. And I was just thinking, like, Tuesday night, we're going to probably have a meal because that's what our family does. And that's how we celebrate. We eat. We love to eat. And we'll have a meal, you know, with the boys. It was black-eyed pea. It turns out it's still in the same room. It's just Torchy's Taco now. But it's the same building. You know, Torchy's Taco took over for black-eyed pea. And we, when we go there, and that's where we spill our hearts to each other. It's beautiful. If you see us there, don't interrupt us because we're having, like, family communion together. And, and, you know, at our house, I mean, we set, and for, for the last nine years, we've had an extra plate at the table and we you know so it's been three lately and for Casey and me and Melanie 
and, and we set the table. And so then after Wednesday, what's that going to be? I was just thinking this morning, I'm still setting three plates. Because some point this semester, at least by Thanksgiving, she's coming home. And we will eat together. And maybe every time we eat until then, it's just a reminder. But we're going to get to eat together again. That's what this is. It's the realization that right now we're, we're eating bread and we're drinking from these cups, but someday, someday, we're all going to eat together again. All our loved ones who've gone to be with the Lord will be with the Lord forever, and it's going to be a banquet, and we're going to be with Him, and He's going to be King, and everybody, and by everybody, I mean everybody, is going to know that He is King. And won't it be glorious? But before we eat, we, we should pray. So would you pray with me? Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. Just say it out loud with me. We've asked God to teach us to pray. Let's say it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.